You're listening to Race Capital on the week of Wednesday, May 8th, 2021 with Chelsea Higgs-Wise, Kalia Harris, and Naomi Isaac. Let's get started with the Race Capital reframe and local news will kick it off with our eviction watch. This week in the eviction watch, there are 58 unlawful detainers on the books in the courts. Last week, there were 264. Just as a reminder to our listeners, unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant from their homes. We will continue to keep watch of these numbers, especially as we are in the middle of budget season here in Richmond. Warning, the following story contains graphic descriptions of police violence. Devastating news out of central Virginia as a Black gay man was shot 10 times in his driveway by a Spotsylvania County deputy just moments after receiving a ride home from the officer. Upon his return to his home, Isaiah Brown called 911 during an argument with his brother, where he was subsequently assaulted after the same deputy allegedly mistook his cordless phone for a gun. Isaiah was on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, told them that he was unarmed and holding a cordless phone. When the police arrived on the scene, body cam footage captured them saying that Isaiah, quote, had a gun to his head, end quote, before shooting him 10 times. Since the shooting, some body-worn footage has been released by the Spotsylvania County Sheriff's Department. The family is demanding the release of the full audio between the 911 dispatcher and the deputy. And the deputy is now on administrative leave as 32-year-old Isaiah Brown remains in critical condition. The Spotsylvania County Sheriff Roger Harris said last week that a special prosecutor has been appointed to oversee the investigation of the case that will be carried out by the Virginia State Police. Y'all, Brown's family and the community are demanding answers and demonstrations have taken place in Spotsylvania in solidarity with Isaiah. I think it is really interesting that we are now having a battle of the tapes of what is accessible to be seen and heard, the role of the dispatch. And that really reminds me a lot of what we are working on here in Virginia about the Marcus alert and the role of dispatch. I think that this is also really interesting that they're using the tactic to delay the releasing of the tapes in hopes that people quote unquote calm down. So nothing about what's happening in Brown's case makes me feel as though we're ever going to really know the true story. Yeah. And yet again, the Virginia state police are investigating a shooting after they killed Xavier Hill. So who are they to investigate anyone? Um, And I think that one of our comrades, Jasmine, brought up a really good point on Twitter this week of what are the numbers and results of these special prosecutors that are being appointed to cases? Is there an impact to what's happening in the criminal justice system? So maybe special prosecutors aren't the answer, but who knows? Imagine that prosecutors aren't the answer. And the police can't investigate themselves. And also just remember that all of this tape and what the judge is using to not show the tape is how will it quote unquote taint the jury pool. And because we're going to have to relive another trial here in Virginia, but here at home and, and see how this goes. So I think it's really interesting as well as how they are now battling the public narrative because they're going to have to pull from the public for the jury. Yep. In other local news, the Richmond community is mourning the loss of a mother and baby who were the victims of a fatal shooting last Tuesday. Four others were injured during the incident. The shooting took place about 6.30 p.m. in an apartment complex off of Midlothian Turnpike 
across from Georgewood High School. And now, you know, so this has been a very hot topic among a lot of the city council members and how they're kind of weaponizing the lateral violence that happens in our community due to divestment, right, to, to fund their agenda of refunding and quote unquote reimagining police. And it is a sensitive topic because what I'm hearing is that people want the same outrage and we do have it. It's just where to focus that outrage and the root cause of that. And so it is this reactionary sense that they are able to exploit and and start targeting and splitting people against each other. But I think you're right, Naomi, It it's caused by the disinvestment and that needs to be something that we're all talking about as well as the loss of life. And this is deeply connected to the over-policing because when you're, you know, you're splitting up families, you're caging family members, and you're leaving people without supports that help them in their development. We know that overwhelmingly food insecure in uh, communities that are victims of food apartheid and housing insecurity are bound to have, you know, more intercommunal violence. And so like Chelsea, you were saying, it's like we want the violence to end too. That's why we take to the streets to say defund the police, because we know that if that money was reinvested in these communities sustaining and supporting uh, programs, then we wouldn't see this these types of things taking place. And it's really sad to witness. And it's why this cycle of the political cycle of conversation is frustrating sometimes because the only solutions that we hear are gun control and more policing when we've seen you know from decades of experience of lived experience in our communities that that doesn't work and so we're seeking out a different solution to a problem that has been happening in our communities for years yeah we want proactive solutions not reactive solutions we don't want the cops to we don't want services to show up after violence has occurred. We want the violence to stop. So this is like, I think this is a good point because I believe that our city council and our the politicians around this area will continue to weaponize these events, especially during budget season when the police are up for millions of dollars in salary increases and showing telling those stories in their testimonies. And so we have to be there to interrupt that violence that's occurring Speaking of the budget and budget season here in Richmond City, the public defenders might finally receive an increase to their funding after years of campaigning for pay parity. Advocates say that more funding will help with retaining public attorneys who currently are paid significantly less than attorneys that work for the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. According to VPM, the Richmond Public Defender's Office is requesting over a million dollars from city lawmakers, which will bring the office much closer to the parity with the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. From what I'm hearing, the uh, million dollars will be about half of what they are requesting. And remember that the parity, pay parity, is the disparity and the difference between what the public defenders are being paid and what the Commonwealth attorney prosecutors are being paid from the research that has been done by these public defenders that is that the public defenders are making just as much money as the executive assistants at the Commonwealth attorney's office. And we're not saying that the executive assistants are not important or should not be paid. But what we are saying is that public defenders that are in charge of free our people should not have that type of disparity in their pay when we know that that's also going to impact people's freedom and lives. It just shows on what level like inequities are happening. 
I had no idea before this year that public defenders were paid, you know, that there was a disparity in the rate of pay. But to think when we think of that stereotype of public defenders as like really stressed, sometimes not having the capacity to learn about their cases, that comes, I'm learning that it actually stems from this disparity in, in pay and resources. So, And I always think about how, you know, intentional it is that they make these public service positions and roles in the community so unbearable and so exhausting. You know, it, it's intentional the way that it doesn't work like more so than I feel like folks assume. And it's also intentional to keep out Black folks that could possibly get hired and get paid other places well than helping their own communities, which is why a lot of folks are like, well, why are the legal justice lawyers white? Well, here we are. Norfolk Police Lieutenant William K. Kelly III was fired a couple weeks ago for publicly supporting Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old white nationalist who opened fire on Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse's actions left two people dead and many others wounded. Rittenhouse sympathizers then set up a GoFundMe account, which amassed over $2 million in donations, and it has since been reported that Lieutenant Kelly, a law enforcement officer from the Norfolk Police Department, contributed $25 to Rittenhouse's fundraiser. Now Kelly, who was fired shortly after the news broke headlines, has garnered mass support from a Christian crowdfunding site with 1,100 supporters having raised over $43,000 in his name. Wow. How long has Little Miss Flint had that fundraiser up, y'all? Black people can't even get water. <laughs> we can't even get water funded. Well, the Richmond City Civilian Review Board Task Force held its first virtual community town hall last week to get community input on what Richmonders want from a civilian police oversight board. According to Dr. Eli Coston, task force co-chair, the likely structure of the Civilian Review Board would include an executive director, five investigators, an auditor, and other staff, all with an estimated first annual budget of $1.2 million. The task force members said that there is a debate whether the Civilian Review Board can investigate claims that happened in the past and not just those after the board is created. Richmond's city attorney said the board may not be able to conduct retroactive investigations, citing Virginia law and a lack of precedent. But several members, including Jewel Gatelane, questioned the city's attorney's stance and will continue their inquiry on the subject. The task force design for a review board will be submitted to city council by August 1 of this year. The task force meets virtually every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. and there's a public comment period. The task force Twitter is at R-V-A-C-R-B. Now y'all, there seems to be a common theme that any progressive, quote unquote, progressive movement going forward with the police or investigations or even prosecutors, no one wants to look at past incidents. I just think that's interesting. Yeah, because white supremacy tries to, you know, utilize the past as the concept of the past to uh, prevent itself from ever, you know, dismantling or, or disempowering itself. And so like, you know, how are we going to talk about moving forward in the future when there are the grievances and in, in the instances that occurred in the past affect the the state and the environment of Richmond today? And of course, there wouldn't be precedent for this. <laughs> I'm just not surprised, though, that the city's attorney, of course, they're not going to try to give people the full ability to deal with 
like complaints from the past that might actually bring up issues for our current officers. Think of all the people they've arrested. Yeah, like without analyzing the past, it's impossible to be proactive. You can only respond to things, you know, you can only wait for things and violences to occur. And it means any new policy that they create now would not hold precedence for anything that we look for in the past. So as the CRB creates new policies, the police will create new policies to cover themselves up. And so it also allows to cover up from things in the past. Finally, in local news, Richmond has lost Adele Johnson, who passed away last month after a battle with terminal illness. Johnson valiantly led the Black History Museum here in Richmond as its executive director for many years, centering and preserving the stories and experiences of Black Virginians. Richmonders and Virginians alike have been paying their respects to Adele Johnson, remembering her as she wished, quote, that people remember her by being intentional about supporting the Black History Museum, end quote. The Black History Museum is located at the Lee Street Armory on West Lee Street. Well, y'all, in national news, we're going to kick it off with our COVID watch. Nationally, there have been over 32 million COVID cases and 591,359 deaths in the United States. In Virginia, we have had just over 650,000 cases and have exceeded 10,800 deaths. The United States is quickly approaching what experts are calling a vaccine wall, as the vaccine supply in the country is set to exceed the demand. While this may be seen as progress, I want to put this into perspective for our listeners. The state of Florida has received more vaccines than the entire continent of Africa through the COVAX program. So while we're over here in the United States with more more supply than there is demand, there's clearly a, a huge global inequity that is continuing. And in other vaccine news, recent data from the CDC shows that more than 5 million people or nearly 8% of those who got the first shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines have missed their second doses. That is more than double the rate among people who got inoculated in the first several weeks of our nationwide vaccine campaign. Many people have cited fears of side effects of the vaccine, though some second appointments were canceled due to the lack of supply in the area. Meanwhile, Joe Biden has told fully vaccinated Americans that they can go outdoors without a face mask, except in big crowds. He said, quote, I want to be absolutely clear. If you're in a crowd, like a stadium or a conference or a concert, you still need to wear a mask, even if you're outside. But beginning today, gathering with a group of friends in a park, going for a picnic, as long as you are vaccinated and outdoors, you can do it without a mask, end quote. So more in national news. Last month, news broke that the remains of 14-year-old Tree Africa, who was killed in the 1985 MOVE bombing in Philly, have been stolen and held at the Penn Museum for decades. Tree Africa's body remains were held under the custody of Professor Alan Mann after Penn received the remains for examination through the city medical examiner's office. Following a dispute over whether specific remains belonged to Tree Africa, who was 14 when killed in the MOVE bombing, Penn kept those remains until 2001 when Mann transferred to Princeton University, taking them with him 
In 2016, Penn brought back the remains for temporary investigation that lasted until 2019, and they were later returned to Princeton per the museum's account. The Inquirer rightly states that, quote, the state violence against Black Philadelphians represented by the move bombing, which city council apologized for just last November, overlaps with the violence of academic institutions keeping the remains of Black people rather than relinquishing those remains for burial. In response to learning how long the museum held the remains of a move victim, Mike Africa Jr. asked how, quote, would they feel if someone got one of their babies and studied it? Think about that for a second. Somebody just burned the baby up and now they put it in a drawer? End quote. Africa demands that the surviving family members be notified by Penn immediately, that Mong be fired, that Penn makes a public apology for this egregious act, and that there is, quote, some kind of restitution, end quote. If this don't sound like the Wells and VCU. I was just about to say universities, just like Virginia Commonwealth University, stay treating Black lives and Black people as something to be reaped, as something to be studied, as science, you know, as inhuman. That's what occurred. They depersonalized that Black death. Yeah. And really just listening to how that body was taken from place to place and was released by the city medical examiner's office. To me, that was really interesting to hear that they're passing on, you know, Black remains to universities. And lastly, in national news, last week, Florida Republicans enacted a law they claimed would prevent riots in the state. Its real purpose, of course, was to discourage protesting and punish demonstrators. One of the bill's provisions seems to give Floridians permission to attack protesters with their cars. And while the bill doesn't exactly make it legal to run someone over, it does shield drivers from civil liability if they injure or kill protesters on Florida roads. Ari Whale, a researcher at the Chicago Project on Security and Threats, counted six states that considered laws shielding drivers who attack protesters in 2017. But most of those so-called hit-and-kill bills went nowhere. By 2020, Whale tracked 72 incidents of cars driving into protesters across 52 different cities over the span of just over a month. The online far right created countless memes about running over demonstrators regularly and cops openly encouraged it in social media comments. In cities such as New York, Detroit, and even here in Richmond, cops also participated in the practice themselves. Five states besides Florida introduced similar bills this year, granting some form of immunity to people running into demonstrators, y'all. The Iowa measure passed the state house and awaits Senate approval. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt just signed another version into law in his state. This one shields attacking drivers from criminal liability. To learn more about this happening here at home in Richmond, be sure to check out our episode from this summer called Cops and Clan Go Hand in Hand. It's wild to see what cops put in comments become law. And I just want to highlight this Oklahoma shielding drivers from criminal liability. It's a lot different than civil liability. Both of them are egregious. Moving on to international news, let's look at COVID. India remains the global epicenter for COVID-19. The country reported 400,000 new cases last Friday, a new record for a single day infections. 
The death count is high with at least 3,000 people dying daily from the disease, but predicted to be higher. Hospitals in the country are overwhelmed with oxygen and other vital supplies running out, forcing health workers to turn away patients. Several countries have sent support in form of vital medical supplies, including oxygen. The U.S. said it would send medical treatments, testing kits, ventilators, personal protective equipment, and possibly oxygen supplies after coming under global scrutiny. Many are calling for the Biden administration to send the U.S. excessive vaccine supply to India, including the tens of millions of AstraZeneca vaccines it has in storage. There are various mutant strains that are fueling the spread in India, including a new double mutant variant. This particular variant has key mutations that make it easier for the virus to reinfect those who have had the virus before. The Biden administration imposed a new travel ban on non-citizens and permanent residents traveling from India that went into effect yesterday. Continuing our international COVID coverage, out of Cuba, the Cuban health authorities are preparing the healthcare centers in Havana for the first stages of mass vaccination in the capital. The first stage of the immunization program will be carried out with Cuban vaccines. By the middle of the year, authorities expect to have immunized over 1.7 million people in Havana, which is the hardest hit city by the pandemic nationwide. According to local media, The health ministry will reinforce the centers with medical interns and students from other related professions. It's kind of interesting to see them using interns in their vaccine layout. And finally, our last international story this week comes out of Latin America, where Uruguay and Colombia reported record COVID deaths at the end of last month, with Brazil averaging over 3,000 deaths a day and Argentina passing just over 60,000 deaths in a year. Argentina's health minister called last week the worst moment of the pandemic. This news comes as the UK-based Bureau for Investigative Journalism has reported that Pfizer was accused of bullying Latin American countries such as Brazil and Argentina in holding life-saving vaccines for ransom. Pfizer has been accused of requiring that certain Latin American countries put up sovereign assets such as national banks and military bases as collateral in order to receive access to the vaccine, or in the case of Argentina, Pfizer allegedly asked that the country shield them from legal liability in a process called indemnification, meaning that they would not be able to be held accountable in a court of law and are shielded from future civil claims. Pfizer has currently made deals with eight Latin American countries and is still in negotiation with other Latin American and Caribbean nations. But everybody's so excited about these private companies making the vaccine and having full control. That's why it's so important that we're looking at Cuba processing their own vaccines, because we see what's happening with these big companies, these big pharmaceutical companies and the intellectual property laws. It's actually costing us lives. And the way that the not only American corporations, but the U.S. government is using the pandemic as a way to actively destabilize entire regions where they have vested interests, such as in Latin America and the Caribbean nations where all of our food supply is controlled. No, no wonder that we see like things such as this taking place. Well, y'all, I would call this pandemic violence. Meanwhile, we got a vaccine surplus in the U.S., But that is our race capital reframe for this week. Stay tuned for the rest of our wonderful episode. 
Yeah, I'm really excited for this week's guest to travel up north to Philly to hear a story of some amazing athletes, state champions, and definitely some of our future leaders. Stay tuned. the West Catholic Lady Burrs basketball team, the 2021 PIA Class AAA Girls Pennsylvania State Champions. Joining us to dive into their journey is Daisy Wilson, Taisha Walker, Patience Saunders, and Coach Beulah Oswege, otherwise known as Coach B by her players. Coach Oswege not only led the team to their first state title in the West Catholic basketball program's history, girls or boys, this is the first time a girls state championship team in Pennsylvania has been led by a black woman. When Coach B started coaching at West Catholic in 2013, the team had a winless season, 0-18. and But over the last eight years, she dedicated herself to building an elite caliber program founded on grit, discipline, and accountability that has consistently produced title after title. The Lady Burrs have earned respect in and beyond Philadelphia by winning multiple titles and ushering in three 1,000-point scorers. Destiny McFall, also known as Dez, who was a 1,000-point scorer and a 2021 Pennsylvania Gatorade Player of the Year nominee, is not in our interview today, but provided comments to say that, quote, winning the state championship means a lot to me and my teammates and I are family, end quote. She goes on to say that we have been through a lot together, including losing the state championship by three points our freshman year. Winning with them this year makes me believe that anything is possible, end quote. The journey to this victory has been long and painful for Coach B and the Lady Burrs. In 2016, the team tragically lost a phenomenal young woman and all-star player, Akira Murray, in the Orlando Pulse Massacre. Akira, one of the three 1,000-point scorers, was taken three days after graduating third in her class. She was the youngest life claimed that night. Coach B dedicated the state championship to Akira, who says that she was the first player to fully believe in her potential as a coach. So stay tuned to hear from the players through their journey to this year's state championship and from the first black woman coach to ever win a championship in their district. I'm Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and you're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned for our interview with Daisy Wilson, Taisha Walker, Patience Saunders, and Coach Bula Asweke. All right, this week on Race Capital, we're traveling north to Philadelphia, and we have a really special story right here on Race Capital, and I'm really excited to have on the show Coach Beulah Asweke, along with the players from the team and champions of 2020. We have Daisy Wilson, Taisha Walker, and Patience Sanders. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thank you for having us. Okay, well, uh, Coach, I'm going to bring it straight to you. Tell us a little bit about who you all are, about your team, and what just happened to you all in the last few weeks. Um, Yes, well, we are the West Catholic Lady Burrs. Um, We are located in West Philadelphia, and we are a very special team, a very close-knit team. And a couple weeks ago, 
We won our um, state championship for the PIAA. I believe it stands for Pennsylvania Interscholastic Athletic Association uh, for our classification. And it was our first uh, state title in our program and also our school's first basketball program title. So, so not just the first um, championship for girls basketball at your high school, just in general for your high school. Yeah, for basketball. We had a football ch- a state championship that was won in 2010, but our school's been in a bit of a drought since then. A bit of a drought. I like the way you say that. All right. So really quickly, uh, I would love to hear from the players. Can you quickly introduce yourself? So I'll start with, can you just tell us your name and uh, what grade you're in and what position you play? Hi, I'm Daisy Wilson. I'm a senior. I play point guard, shooting guard, um, and I'm number 11. My name is Patient Sanders. Uh, I'm a senior. Um, I was a forward and my number was number 23. Hi, my name is Taisha Walker. I'm a senior. I'm number 13, and I play power forward and center. So I'm going to be really honest and say that I've been kind of following you all a little bit. I've got these connections. Uh, it's a small world, right? And just to find out that there was a team with such success, but also such a history that's, that's come out, and there just seems like there's a real sense of magic. So what is some uniqueness to this team's connection or what sets you all apart from other programs that's contributed to this sense of family and really the success? We're the only like black team that has a black head coach. So that makes us unique. And our relationship extends beyond the basketball court. After practice, we most likely would go out and get something to eat, um, hang out uh, for a few hours after practice at each other's houses, um, talk through our group messages just things like of that nature. Um, some of us, we used to play together when we were younger, so we already knew each other. So like just transition on high school, it just made it easier because we was used to all. So having a long time connection, have you all, so you all have been in the same space and what part of Philadelphia are you all in? West Philadelphia. And all of you all have grown up there? Yes. I didn't grow up in West, I grew up in North Philly. Tell the listeners the differences of of North Philly, West Philly, because we're down in the South and we don't have any idea, right? So this is time to tell a little tea. What's how would you describe West Philadelphia, where, where you all are right now? The trenches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's very true. The trenches. I think North is worse though. North got to be worse though. Yeah, it is. So what, what makes North uh, Philadelphia worse than West Philadelphia? But go ahead, Daisy. <laughs> oh, yeah, Daisy, that's where you're from, right? That's what you said. I see you from there, too. I don't know. I was never really in, like, the crazy part of North Philly. I was in, like, the chill part. So I think around, like, Diamond Street, that's where it's, like, really bad in North Philly. So Do you all... You know, when, you, when you're talking about bad places and, and places being crazy and wild, um, are there other things that, you know, histories or stories that you've heard that might have even made those places like that? Or are those things that you hear from your elders? Or do you all just know, like, that's, that's the wild place? What's that narrative? I mean, I feel like that's what we see every day. Like, everybody's it, killing is bad in Philadelphia and shootings and stuff like that. So it's just like, Things that we see every day, it's like the norm. I hate to say it, but it's like the norm. So tell us, what is what is your sense of normal while playing basketball, while 
being a champion team right now, right? Like you all have um, talked about a lot. So what are some of the challenges while you've been playing this year, particularly that have kind of impacted you all? Um, I mean, we were set back due to COVID. We had like a COVID case. And, and not only that, like when we were playing, it was hard because, I mean, we were, we're the only black team. So we, the refs weren't on our side and, and stuff. So it would be hard playing and playing through like calls and stuff like that and just overcoming. Um, Chelsea, can I ask you a question about the different pockets of the city? So y'all are from here. So if y'all agree, disagree, go let me know. So um, I'm from Houston. And so when I moved up here, I, th- I thought it was just Philly. And so I learned that it's a neighborhood city. So like each city is, each part of the city is very unique. So you have West Philly that is, I think it has like uh, Penn, Drexel, is that true y'all? Those kind of schools. This has like like three, two or three schools. So it's, it's black, but then you have the gentrified areas that are like coming up with Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts and all that. Then you have Southwest Philly that is further away from those schools. So you have Southwest Philly. So I think our schools in Southwest Philly, we're kind of at the cusp with Southwest and West. Then you have South Philly, which is a bunch of white people and Italians. Um, then you have North Philly, hella gun violence, um, a lot going on. Temple's trying to gentrify, but it's a lot going on over there. Then you have Northwest, that's where I live. It's, it's kind of green, quiet. Um, then you have Center City, which is, I guess, like downtown. People don't say I'm from Philly necessarily. They'll say I'm from like West Philly, North Philly. Like they'll be specific about it. And there's not an East Philly. I learned that in my first couple of years. People got mad at me <laughs> for asking. That was going to be a question. Is there no East Philly? Did the coach do that, uh, that representation all right? Yeah. Close <laughs> to perfect. <laughs> Patience uh, mentioned something about you all being hit with COVID pretty hard. And you also mentioned again about you all being the only Black team in you all's district. Can you, I guess, expand on a little bit more about that? How many teams are in your district and how did you all, I guess I'm just, how did you all become the only Black team? Like, I guess that's just red line identification in modern day. But um, that seems to be a really interesting dynamic that you, you've brought up a couple of times. I don't want the listeners to miss. I'm not sure how we became the only Black, black team for not only Black team. Um, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> How does that how does that feel? How does that feel playing in in a in a league that you all are the only team represented that looks like you all and you're and you're just playing up against white teams? Um it feels a little tough because not all the calls is gonna go your way. But I mean if you play with a chip on your shoulder every time, then the game's gonna come natural to us and we should be able to dominate. Um Chelsea, if I can I'll add this. So our league, so, okay, it's like Philadelphia. So you have two uh, leagues. You have the public league and you have the Catholic league. We're in the Catholic league. There's 13 teams in all, predominantly white. We are one of two black teams. There's another black team, but they have a white coach and they're part of a white school. So the dynamics are very different. And then you have the Philadelphia public league that literally has over 40 schools, all under-resourced. Um, and they all compete against each other. So, like, there's hella black schools in Philly, but then you have the Philadelphia Catholic League, which is a regional powerhouse, and it's it's, it's nationally known, well-resourced, uh, prestigious, very white. It gets to say Philadelphia, but a lot of the schools are in the suburbs. Like, the three, the four teams that we batted up against this year, 
um, that were above us actually just only two were above us. And then the other one that was a contender, they're all in the suburbs. We're the only team that was a championship contender that actually is located in Philadelphia. Thank you for that context. That, that clears that up a lot. And, and you all, you all mentioned that COVID was a barrier that happened. And like I said, I've been following you all a little bit. This wasn't your only successful year, right? You all were pretty, were doing pretty well last season and then COVID hit. How did, how did the first round of COVID come and hit you all last year? What was that like? It was very like detrimental because it was like, at first we didn't expect it to hit us that hard to the point where we weren't able to see each other every day. We weren't able to go out and compete and finish states. So it was like really an upset and it was a little like depressing because we couldn't play the game that we loved. And even outside of basketball, what was that like? I mean, when you all had to, you all were like family, right? So that means you're not going to practice. You're not seeing each other. What was it like, Daisy? It was kind of upsetting because, like, we, we were so close together and just, like, for us to have to stop out of nowhere, like, stop seeing each other, it was it was messed up. Like, we didn't get to see each other. And are you all, this this year, are you all in person? Or what was this year, like, coming back and, and starting a new season after everything that happened last year and you had made it to States and unable to finish? What was this new season like? So this year... We had the option to be fully virtual or hybrid, but since we played a sport, we had to be hybrid. And it was it allowed us to go to go into school and see some of our teammates because we had classes with each other. So we would go into school, and that was the only way we'd be able to play. How has that been being a student athlete in hybrid and COVID? It's kind of hard to be honest. Because online school is difficult and going in one day and then be home the next and then having to be at practice and then having to make up work. It's just a lot. And I don't feel like, I don't know, like the teachers were even making it any easier for us. It was, I feel like they were making it harder I hate to say it, but yeah, it wasn't easy at all. Yeah, I'll add that um, I'm pretty strict about grades and all that. I don't know if I could tell this season, but I, I had to loosen up on that. I wasn't about to be yelling at y'all about C's and D's. I mean, still don't want you making them, but I really had to pick my battles this year. Um, the team was a lot more fragile uh, psychologically, and I wanted to make sure that the time with, with each other had already been cut so much, we couldn't do any of our team bonding. We, we usually um, do like a holiday party, couldn't do that. We usually visit a local university, watch practice, eat after that. We couldn't do any of that. So the only time they spent with each other and with us um, within the school context was like practice or a game. And it kind of felt like it takes away what high school sports is supposed to be about. Um, it's supposed to be more fun than college because college really is a job. But this year it felt like a job. And so I I had to weigh in like, do I want to win or do I want to, um, you know, make sure these kids still have like a positive experience with this? And a lot of times I found myself tiptoeing because I wanted to win. I wanted to make sure this was a good season for them as seniors. But also, like, there was just a lack in performance academically and athletically. And um, I really had to, as a coach, I had to lean on them to know when it was time to step it up because I did not want to push anybody away. Uh, did any of y'all notice anything like that? I'm curious. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we had, like, 
C's or ADFs or stuff like that, we would be running. But this year we did like <laughs> stuff like that, which is understandable. But yeah, because everybody was failing. So <laughs> yeah, y'all live, y'all live through that. Don't the only three. <laughs> the, only, the only three. <laughs> oh man. So coach, I mean, you brought up just being fragile with them during this past season how has that been being fragile on yourself as a coach right and you kind of you just talked about that battle a little bit and now looking hindsight you were able to kind of give both you were able to win and offer this space which is amazing but during that process um how how did you kind of keep that balance even for yourself and your own emotions yeah, anytime someone asks me about myself, I'm always taken aback because I'm like, what? Because I always feel like I'm just a behind-the-scenes person. But um, so we, we were having a documentary that was filmed of us. And I know when I w- look back at one scene in particular, I'm going to be like, oh, my God. Um, y'all, it was our first loss against O'Hara. And I was walling out. I was, I was walling out because I wanted to win so bad. I tried to break a clipboard. I was cursing. A teacher was like, are you okay? Because we were at the other school. She was checking on me. But I, I just wanted it so bad. I wanted it so bad. But I think um, after a couple of losses that I found were disappointing and avoidable, but we did not avoid them, I really did have to resign. And I had to be like, I have to trust these kids. Um, I wanted us to win all three championships. We got two out of the three. Um, but again, I feel like I could have pushed to win all three and possibly lost kids. And I, I really did follow their lead and what was meant to happen happened. Um, but it was, this was probably my most difficult season because I've seen it be what it, I want it to be community oriented, uh, community based. We're like seeing people, um, we're able to see and feel people's pride. And this year people are watching this online. It felt very cold. We couldn't even change in our locker room. We had to change in the, um, in the gym, like everything was taken away. So it was kind of weird to like work so hard and build for all these things to be taken away so that you can keep playing. It was, uh, it was really interesting. So I was pretty drained, but I trusted the kids, the bulk of our team were seniors. So I just, I trusted that they were going to take us where we need to go. Um, another big challenge was we didn't have our fans there this year. So it was like, we had to rely on ourselves to cheer each other on. And that was something that we needed to get used to. And Chelsea, let me say this, that that was really hard. So the suburban schools, they were playing in summer leagues, playing over the summer, playing over the fall. There was a league, somebody was like, Coach B, you got to get your kids to do this. It was $1,000. We don't have $1,000 to do a preseason league. But the three other teams that were contending for a championship this year, they all got to do it. So they are playing over the summer, playing over the fall. Meanwhile, we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs because um, recreational sports has been shut down in, in the city. So this is why it's problematic that we have a Philadelphia Catholic League with only one contending team in the city limits because we literally were not allowed to work out. So I remember when we could finally, um, our president gave us the okay, we worked out outside and worked out on um, court baskets until it got too cold and then everything got shut down again. So we didn't, we normally get started in August. And then we have preseason from August to November. We couldn't do any of that this year. We finally got started in, I think, November. We went for like two or three weeks and then got shut down again. We didn't get to start working out again as a team in person until mid-January. And our first, and then we had the COVID cases. So 
it was so disjointed. And again, that's why I told myself, I was like, you have to chill and trust these kids because these teams you're going up against have been working out and building their chemistry literally since June. Um, so it was, it was, it was very, very difficult. And like, when I look back, I'm really proud of the kids because we had two stoppages. Um, the three of the teams that are contending for the league championship, I don't think they didn't have a stoppage that was uh, documented. Like, cause if you have postponements, they put it on Twitter, they didn't have it. And we had it, uh, we had a shutdown and then we had stoppages cause there was issues within our, our school and our program. So I thought that was important context as well. The inequities continue. My goodness. Yeah, that's an important context. Besides the locker room, that was a, a shocker to hear that you all didn't even have access to locker rooms. You don't have your fans, your family there. And my question was about other barriers or, or things that came up that weren't available on COVID. I was just going to talk about like how like even watching it online, it was difficult sometimes because there was an option to watch some of our games on YouTube, but the other games, like the games that were in the suburbs, they were eleven dollars on this website called and what's it called coach b like nhf whatever it's called nfhs i think it's national federation of high school sports or something yeah so it was like eleven dollars and my parents was going to pay eleven dollars just to watch the game every game so that was also like a difficulty because it just wasn't convenient for us no that's true because i was trying to watch the games and i was like what app do i have to now download and subscribe to and all of that it's it was a process yeah so you all mentioned uh, that you are also the only team with a black coach. That to me is that, have you all had black coaches growing up and, and playing basketball or is this something new for you all? I haven't because I came from Ohio. I came here my freshman year and I didn't have any black coaches. All my coaches were white uh, men. So <laughs> coming to Philly and having a black coach, that's, that was a whole like different process. Um, for me, it was just transition from a male black coach to a female black coach. Like, I always had male black coaches, so. Well, I basically had male black coaches my whole life. It was there this one time in particular in middle school where I had a white coach. So hearing that, and what are what are some of the differences, if you don't mind saying it while she's right here, but what, what are some of the differences in having a black woman coach than having, say, a white male coach or a black male coach? Um, some of the differences are that she understands better because she's been in our exact position, but like a male black coach understands, but they haven't been in our exact position. She's been in our position already. I mean coming from like coaches that were white like she's more relatable and more open and she'll take you home I don't think I'll feel comfortable riding with my white coach home like I mean I mean she's more fan like family like I don't know so with that not only having a black woman coach and the only black woman coach in the league you all have created this championship team this year how is that impact of having a black coach and as well, coach, I'm going to ask you, what does that feel like to, to be that coach? Um, well, first I didn't know, I, I didn't know that y'all have never had black female coaches before. Uh, it's really sad, honestly, like no shade to the people that have coached y'all, but my God. And that leads me to my answer to you, Chelsea. Um, we need more. Um, you know, first thing for me, I was able to study psychology in school. I did community organizing. So like, I know how to 
talk to people, how to have self-interest, how to build um, community that's based on something and not just like the desire to win, but the desire to help develop these kids. But um, I, it makes me sad, the lack of black female coaches that are available to these kids. And I also know why. And um, a lot of these issues are systemic. Um, they're not gonna be fixed with a workshop or with a pat on the back or a conversation. But I do really hope that our success as a program inspires um, more coaches, older, younger, it doesn't matter. But I just feel like we need a lot more black women in the scene. It is highly dominated with black men and I think that's great, but we, we, need, we need black women. Um, earlier on, I felt very isolated. I remember the first coaching meeting I went to, I did not talk. And I didn't, I think I went to one other one after that and then I didn't go back. And I've been doing this eight years. We get fined if I don't go and I, the school just have to pay the fine because I didn't care. Um, but then in my later years when my team got better, um, I was definitely determined to win, to not have to kiss anybody's ring and just to win in spite of. We're we are, we are, we are full of personality, our team. Um, I will yell, I will curse, I will get on refs and I don't care. Uh, I also, for me as a black coach, I thought it was important to tell my kids they're perfectly fine how they show up. Um, they're perfectly fine how they look. They don't have to talk any type of way, anything like that. Just make sure that you're always there for your teammates and make sure that you go your hardest. Um, so one of the rules I have was like, please don't engage with the referees. I'll take care of that. But anytime any one of my kids told me something was going on, I would talk to the ref about it um, because it's expected for the kids to be wild and, you know, curse and have attitude towards refs. And so I tried to teach them like leadership. There's a way to, you can express your concerns. But anything they told me, I believed it. And I, and I went to them and tried to advocate for them. Do you all feel proud to say that you were able to win this champion and with a Black woman coach, like that you were part of that history? What does that feel like? More than happy, <laughs> especially with what we had to go through. Um, it feels amazing. But at the same time, it's still hard to believe that we won states and that we won a PCO. Like to this day, I'm still shocked. I was gonna say it is a moment and you all should take a moment to see how it feels and reflect on it. Did you all ever think about a headline like you all winning before? Is this what you all envisioned? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little time since freshman year. <laughs> I mean, Chelsea, if I could mention Patience is a is a champion in, in track and field. She won uh, the Catholic League championship all four years um, in her respective. Yeah, she's like an Olympic caliber kid. And I think she placed fifth place in state. And I felt bad. Like, I didn't know, like she's broken several school records. And I felt bad because I'm so zoned in on basketball. I didn't even know she was like killing it in these other, not even killing it. Like she is a star. And um, when we won the Catholic League championship last year, we had like this ceremony in the school and patients had like 20 medals and I thought they were from middle school. I was like, that's strange. But then this year she mentioned that like, no, she won all those during her high school tenure. So um, I say that to say, I think it's, we just need good coaches. We need better. I'm not shading patients previous coaches, but I don't know how you have a kid like that. And, she, and the whole world doesn't know what she's been able to do. Um, so I don't even remember what prompted me to say that other question, but like, my God, we, yeah, our kids are great. We got to celebrate them. Patience is like, I've been there, done that. There was just no headline, <laughs> but she did the work. No, but for real. No, I know. I know. <laughs> yes. No, but for real. I mean, 
And I wouldn't have even known to ask about that, right? Like, and that's so also Black women. We need other Black women to hype us up and drop in our accolades when they come up and when people don't even bring them up. And it's important. And that even leads me to when you all won the state championship and we were looking to see about coaches historic win we couldn't find records and it was also hard for you all to to get this press and to shine not only on the coach but on you all's wins and then some of the stars on your team so talk about some of the stars on you all's team i guess i'll go first um so basically on the team, I'm I'm the shooter. I'm known as the shooter on the team. No one can shoot better than me. Best shooter on the team. I can shoot better than Daisy. A lot <laughs> better. She tries to shoot better than her. I succeed at it. <laughs> she, she tries really hard. She never succeeds. Um, so basically, the role I play on the team, I like to like get my teammates open first because I know I'll I'll make shots, but I like help get my teammates to score. I'm the loud voice. I'm very confident in talking <laughs> and sharing people one. Um, yeah, I just, I'm very uh, excited for my teammates. I like to say I'm the energizer. I might not say much, but my energy speaks a lot. Um, and I like to call myself the floor general, you know. No, we don't know the floor general. What does that mean? Tell us. Someone who likes to guard their best player, lock them up, um, get on the floor a lot, go for rebounds, and make sure you pick your teammates up. Like, if somebody make a bad mistake, like Daisy, if she might foul, like, I tell Daisy, you know, you got the next one. Like, I be telling her to beat her ass up. Like, you got her. <laughs> the floor general. All right, all right. So so what are, what are some lessons y'all have learned um, as a time as a player? under a coach what are what are some lessons you all have learned and not just this year but you know with a few years you all mentioned you've you've gone through a lot so what are you going to take from this all being seniors getting ready to go to college next year what you taking with you um in practice I was punished a lot because of my bad attitude um and body language so she told me that well I need to start to change in order to get where I want to be. Um. So basically, I was more of like a, a quiet leader. I didn't really like step up into like being a leader. So I guess she would tell me like speak up and use my voice more. And that can be all sorts of places, even on this radio show. You doing all right? You doing okay? Coach B taught me the importance of tough love. Yes, she did. <laughs> Patience expound, because that, what does that mean? Like, you know our potential, and you pushed us to reach our fullest potential. And you did that through love, maybe some punishment, maybe through some sprints, maybe through talks, but through it all, we always, we reached our fullest potential through your help. So, tough love. I don't feel like you reached your fullest potential. Okay, but. This is the beginning. Yeah, it is the beginning. It is the beginning of greatness. Look at that. Coach always going to be pushing you. Always going to be pushing you. So how how is now living in Philly? How is this all affecting you all's approach? Um, And let me just ask, do you all all realize, especially you told me a little bit about 
the setting of Philly, different parts of Philly. Um, and just as an outsider, to be honest, when I'm thinking about West Philly, number one, Fresh Prince, obviously it comes to everyone's mind. I don't know. I'm sure you hear that every day. Number two, um, you know, there is a, there is a taboo sense. There's someone like me, I know, you know, know the history of the move bombing. There's, there's, uh, you all were actually, so I, I spoke a little bit about abolition before, but Philadelphia had the first professionalized police, um, in the country, and Richmond had the second, which is just a reason to militarize and target Black people. So you all come from a very charged area, um, whether whether you all are steeped in that or not. And I'd, I'd be interested in, number one, do you all know some of that history? And if you do, like, do you all feel that as part of your power coming out of Philly? Um, I've heard, like, the backstories and, like, the bombings. Um, but I don't know, like, everything, like, the, all the details that go into it, but I do know, like, what happened, the basics, like, what happened. Um, but, like, over the summer, me, along with a few of our, my teammates, like, Destiny, she's not on here, Siani, um, and former teammates, uh, we all participated in, like, um, protests and stuff downtown, and we experienced firsthand, like, getting uh, shot by rubber uh, bullets and like things are like that or getting the SWAT team like chasing us or <laughs> something like that. So we, we experienced that. Yeah. So even if you don't know the history, you realize it's living history and you all are living through it right now. Right. And as, as any of that, that you all say it's wild, we know where you're from. I mean, how does that, how does that feed into how you come and show up on the basketball court? Sometimes you never know what's, like, going on in someone else's life. So, like, you don't know what's going on in their head, like, what they're thinking coming into practice. Like, you don't know if, like, one of their family members died. You don't know what's going on with their life. So they, they might not be focused enough in practice and you could be constantly getting on. But literally, you know something happened. Um, by us experiencing this stuff, like, having to wake up every day, we hear cops zooming up and down the blocks, uh, walk outside, people selling drugs. Or, like, sometimes I may be in my room and I hear gunshots. It is certain stuff like that. Um, baseball is, like, an outlet for all of us. Or even, like, patients, she might, you know, do track and stuff. That's, like, an outlet for her. And so, like, the best, well, the sport basketball is, like, really important to us in our daily lives. No, I definitely agree with what Taisha said because it's nonstop here. If you see uh, uh, drug dealers on the corner, I mean, as soon as you walk outside, it's it's not nonstop. It's nonstop. It's a it's a continuous hustle here in Philadelphia. So, yeah, and what I'll say is like um, a lot of times, like when people are giving me accolades and all that stuff, I I can receive them, but it's hard for me to receive them because I'm not from Philly. I, I moved here. And so I'm going to be honest, it took me a while to, to get adjusted to these kids' reality because um, this wasn't my reality. So that's like um, part of when you were asking, like, what makes our program special? It, I think everyone can say it, but it truly is a holistic approach to, like, development because um, I think coaching really transformed me. Uh, I never, I never would have had to grapple with hearing constant gunshots. I mean, I hear it too now, but I'm an adult. Um, hearing the police cars, seeing the drug dealing and drug dealers, knowing that they target young kids sometimes. It's a lot. And so like um, playing basketball, that's, that's why I'm saying I don't want to lose any of the kids, especially this year, because I never want a kid to 
wander into something because Coach B yelled at me or Coach B didn't understand where I was coming from. And I think, like, these kids play with that appreciation. I mean, I feel it. Even if they come across as bratty or don't always say thank you as often as I would like, it's very evident that this outlet has benefited them um, in a multitude of ways. And, like, for me as a coach, and I know I can speak for our other coaches too, that helps us continue putting forth um, everything we can. Okay, so you all are seniors. So what is next for you all? Not just next year, but you had a vision for this championship. So what is the vision for you all's future? Next year, I am hoping to attend LSU to study marine biology. Um, it's something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, I particip- I'm a lifeguard, so I'm always in the water. Um, I did scuba diving, so I can't wait until I go to Louisiana <laughs> and uh, study marine biology. Well, recently, I had two colleges that I really wanted to go to, but I got, like, denied, and it was, like, a major upset. But I want to study um, engineering and look into pursue that at a HBU college of my choice. I haven't decided yet. Can I ask where which HBCUs you're looking at? I'm looking to uh, FAMU, Jackson State, Hampton, uh, Dell State, and I don't know what else so far. Options. So you have options. Great, great, great. All right, Daisy. I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> where I'm going. Um, I should know sometime um, next week where I'm going. Um, I want to study um, sports medicine, but my mom keeps trying to convince me to go to pre-med, so I'm not sure. Again, options, options. Well, congratulations to all of you all. Um, I think you all should be pretty proud. Is there anything that you all want to say or bring up that I didn't ask you about? It was this one moment in particular. We was playing this team, and they was making, like, snooty comments about, like, our gym and stuff or the way our school looked. Like, they walked in saying, um, they said old school gym. Yeah, old school gym. Because <laughs> we only, we have bleachers. We don't have, like, um, what, we don't have, like, I don't know. Our gym's not big. It's really small. It's, like, this big. And so, <laughs> they're making fun of our floors and stuff like that. Making fun steak. It's my, like, doodle. <laughs> they walked they walked in our bathroom and said ew i'm about to throw up and i was right there and i was like oh my god that is so disrespectful how dare you and we beat them <laughs> so, so let me give you the context so this is for our state semifinal game this team is so rich they're probably the richest school we've ever gone to they have a swimming pool <laughs> they have like a movie theater yeah i don't patience you might have been there we, we went to their school I think three or four or five years ago. They're very rich. So this year, because of COVID, um, state playoff games have to be played at the upper team's school. So that was us. We were the very top team. So they had to travel to us. First of all, they came in a coach bus um, to our game. They, they're only like 40 minutes away, if that. And then, like, yeah, they're all white, and they had, like, one black girl. She's mixed, and um, it, she kind of assumed the white girl role. And so they were walking, the patients come to me. She's like, they're talking about our bathroom. I said, they are? I said, what? I said, what they say? She said, um, they said, oh, I'm about to throw up. <laughs> so then she and Siani run to the bathroom. I don't know what happened there. Then as they're walking into the gym, they're like, it smells like sweat in here. And we're like, it's a gym. Our boys had just finished practicing. 
So um, we ended up, I think the first quarter was like 22 to four. And at the halftime, it was like 40 to 10. And I was just so happy that they did that because I'm like, I don't care what resources y'all have or how rich you are. We whooped your ass in our sweaty ass gym. So the karma, the karma. That was a good story. Anything else you all want to mention that I didn't ask you about? Um, I'll also add like, yeah, I saw that. I don't know, Daisy, Taisha, I don't know if y'all went to protests and stuff, but like this year, honestly, it seriously was a culmination of all things. Cause I know that um, Walter Wallace Jr. Got shot. Like that was like in fall too. And um, we, our president, like they didn't have score. They had school virtually for two days. Cause they were scared that, you know, the kids might get hurt or whatever. And I remember I took patients home and there was like seven cops on each corner. I felt so uncomfortable and they were all white. The patients, is that right? Cause you live by Malcolm X park, right? Yeah, I live by Malcolm X Park, and the police station is, like, what, a couple of blocks down from my house, and so, like, there are protests going on, and 52nd Street is, like, a main street, so, like, everybody's gonna be up there protesting, and I live right there, so, like, it was a whole, it was, like, all these police officers just standing there, just, just waiting for something to happen, but in all reality, nobody was really doing anything, it was just a large group of Black people there, so, <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. And I remember, like, I never, I had never seen that, like, that before. And I remember, like, I, I always wait for patients to get inside, but that, I was scared that day. Like, I was, I was very nervous. Um, and then I remember the day that I heard about the news of him getting shot, I texted all the kids to check in. And, like, my kids are pretty tough, and I think that's the most vulnerable. A couple of them had been, because they were just like, it's too much. Like we're hearing this is happening nationally. You're hearing about all these different places and it happens in our backyard and it affects our ability to convene as a team. So I just feel like everything that we've talked about, everything I've seen, it showed up this year. It was, it was super well. And like you said, right in your backyard. And even with that, you all are state champions. So again, congratulations to all of you all. To Taisha Walker, Patient Saunders, Daisy Wilson, Coach Abula Asweke. And I just really appreciate you all being on Race Capital. Is there a way for people to continue to follow or support you all that you want to shout out? Mine is my name, Patient Sanders, mm-hmm. uh, without the E in the last name. P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E-S-A-N-D-R-S. Mm-hmm. And Patient, you, you own a company? I do. I have an eyelash business. It's called Fabulash. And you can check that out too. Fab.lash on Instagram. Y'all can probably follow Coach B on Instagram. You know, get her up there. No. Y'all have like thousands. Oh, yeah. She only has like 10 followers. (laughs) I I have more than 10. Get this one with the followers, please. Yes. So, yes. That's great, Taisha. Thank you. So, my Instagram at is Coach B O S U E K E. All my players have thousands of more followers than me. So please follow me. I'll follow back. And we do have a team account <laughs> at Lady Burst, L-A-D-Y-B-U-R-R-S on Instagram and Twitter. That's all for this week's Race Capital. Be sure to tune in next week at 10 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And catch up on all of our past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and thanks for listening to Race Capital.